This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun, and welcome to my annual collaborative Halloween episode. For those new listeners out there, Every year since I began the show in 2017, I've done a collaborative episode at Halloween where I ask people to submit stories all based around a central theme. And this year's theme is real life horror. And several people, both friends and fellow podcasters, submitted great stories that either happened to them or somebody that they know well. And let me tell you, this year's batch is a good one, and they run the gamut from paranormal or supernatural to everyday activities suddenly taking a dark turn. So settle in and get cozy, because I've got some very spooky stories for you tonight. And before I forget, Happy Halloween, my personal favorite holiday, even though I do celebrate it year-round. So I decided to kick the show off with my own personal spooky story. Now I do have many, but this one just tends to stand out in my memories more than the rest. And I think once you hear it, you'll understand why. So growing up as a kid in the 90s was very different than kids have it today, as you probably know. We had so much freedom. And on nice summer days, we would pretty much spend the whole day outside, just riding our bikes all around, running around the neighborhood, etc. And we were pretty much free to do what we wanted. And we usually stayed within our bounds as well. Because for kids with big imaginations, there was plenty to see and do and explore in a pretty small circumference from my house. Now, I had a friend growing up, I'll call her C., And we were kind of like bad influences on each other. We just egged each other on to do things and often did very stupid things that neither of us would probably have done on our own. So one sunny summer day when I was around 11 or 12, C was hanging out at my house and we decided to take a bike ride. Now there was a place in my town that my brothers and I had discovered Primarily because it was near a baseball field where our respective Little League teams would often play. And the place was crazy. It was this massive, spread out area that was just a big sandy pit. It was right next to a road, but to get down into the pit you had to go down probably about 25 feet. And it just stretched out as far as the eye could see especially to a small child. There were little clumps of bushes and trees to hide behind, and there were often little standing pools of water that we generously called lakes. It was basically a kid mecca, especially because of the fact that people would often dump their 
old furniture, refrigerators, etc. So it was a really fun place for a bunch of adventurous kids that grew up watching the Goonies to go explore. Of course, us being children, we unimaginatively named the place the Sand Pits. And it was a place that we would occasionally go to spend a really long time just running around in the sand, which I can't imagine doing now, but it was a blast back then. One weird thing about the sand pits is that it was located in a place with a lot of heavily wooded areas. And then here was this giant expanse of sand just in the middle of it. But because of that, in several spots around the steep edges coming down into the pit, there were tons of trees. And so to get down there, we would just, you know, hold onto branches as we made our way slowly down, which really beat, you know, flying face first down into the sand. Plus, you know, we climbed a lot of trees back then, so it wasn't really that big of a deal. And we were already constantly doing daredevil stunts involving trees, which were all very dumb. So it was just another fun thing about the pit. So on that fateful summer day, when I was hanging out with C, we decided to ride our bikes over to the pit, which was about a mile and a half from my house, probably. And you had to go up a massive hill to get up to the area where you could, you know, trudge down through the sand and actually enter the pit. So we did this, and, you know, having the energy of youth, we just dragged our bikes along with us into the sand. And some areas were hard packed, so you could just kind of ride your bike around down there, too. So we were down there for a while, just roaming around, looking at, you know, junky couches and other random things people had thrown down there. But, you know, when you're a kid, you have this magical thinking that you're going to just stumble across buried treasure or something. So we always just went out looking for cool stuff to play on or play with. So we were hanging out in the pit quite a while that day, and it was getting later in the day, you know, even though summer in Alaska never really gets that dark, but it was still getting a little late, like maybe 7 p.m., when out of nowhere we heard a voice calling to us. At first it sounded like a small child calling for help. They were saying, help, girls, help. And it was coming from this copse of trees about... 400, maybe 500 yards away from us. And at first I think we were both thinking, well, we should go over there and, you know, see who this kid is that needs help. But as the person yelled again, we both realized that there was something not quite right about the voice. There was just something off about it. In fact, it hit me all at once. It sounded like an adult man trying to sound like a child. And they were trying to lure us over to a wooded area. A place so thick with trees that the summer sun wouldn't even shine through. Being over 25 years past, I don't have the clearest memory of that day, but I feel like that to both of us, it sort of clicked in an instant, and we looked at each other and started hustling in the opposite direction, making for the path up the edge and out of the pit. I remember just having a terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach as we 
hurriedly dragged our bikes through the sand as fast as we could. Because even though there was plenty of daylight still, and there were neighborhoods all around that pit, we were still isolated enough that it would be unlikely if anyone were to hear us scream. And when we finally made it up the steep, treacherous trail to the paved bike trail next to the main road, we rode as fast as our legs could go, all the way back to my house. And even then, as a very naive and trusting child, I somehow knew that we had maybe just dodged something very dangerous indeed. And all these years later, I can still clearly hear in my mind exactly what that voice calling for us sounded like. Hello everyone, Lisa Cisneros here contributing from Chicago with not one, but two spooky, scary, true stories about what I believe were legit paranormal experiences. So, one takes place over the course of a few days at my mother's house in Elmhurst, Illinois, uh, which would actually also be the first of several experiences I've had since dealing with electronics that have a mind of their own. And the second takes place on the historically haunted Archer Avenue here in the Chicagoland area, which uh, many of you may have heard of already because of the very popular legend of hitchhiking ghost, Resurrection Mary. But first, Elmhurst, Illinois, summer of 2005. So just to set the scene, Elmhurst is a lovely suburb, okay? Strong sense of community, tree-lined streets, well-kept homes, lots of little families, and you can walk around at 2 a.m. and feel perfectly safe, okay? My mother's house is a large, long, ranch-style home. Um, There's like a few nooks and crannies, hidden corners, but you can pretty much see through the length of a house from one end to the other. So my point is there's really nothing overtly spooky about the place. So 2005 summer, like I said, 26 years old and I've just moved back in with my mom and stepfather about a week earlier so that I can afford to go back to school in the fall and at the time I'm working as a bartender. My mom and my stepfather both work in sales. Um, They travel pretty frequently and they're both getting ready to leave for work trips. So this is going to be the first time since really setting roots down in the home um, that I'm going to be home for a few days without them. So, yeah, side note, this isn't, like, my childhood home or anything. I didn't grow up in the house. I had stayed there sporadically, like, for a few weeks at a time before or days here or there, vacation when I was in school prior to, but I haven't really, like, lived here. So, anyhow, they leave. Cool. Whatever. I go to work that night, and I arrive back home about 3 a.m. after closing the bar. So, when I get home, all is well. Nothing is amiss. And I promptly head straight to bed because I have to get up around 8.30 the next day to open the bar. Um, It was working back to back. So I snuggle up. I fall asleep shortly thereafter. Well, next morning, my alarm goes off. I hop out of bed because I really don't have a lot of time. I worked pretty far away. And um, but instead of going to the bathroom right away, like I normally would, I immediately walk to the large dresser mirror in the bedroom and I look at my reflection. Now, right away, I feel like something is different about my appearance, but I can't quite put my finger on it. Then I realize what it is that's different. My earrings that I sure as hell went to bed with in my ears, they're not in my ears, okay? 
So another side note here, I'm the kind of person who never leaves the house without earrings. I feel completely naked if I have nothing in my ears. Um, however, I am into really simple jewelry. So at the time, for the past three years, from like 2002 to 2005, I've been wearing these little diamond chip earrings that had X had bought for me, okay? They were small, they were simple, and they went with everything. Um, I maybe took them out once a year if I changed things up for a wedding, but I basically wore these earrings 24-7 from 2002 to about 2018. Um, and in the 16 years that I wore these earrings, nothing like what happened that day has ever happened before or since. So earrings are not in my ears, and I know I went to bed with them on. I walk over to the bed, and I begin searching under the pillows and in the blankets. Nothing. But then something tells me to look under the bed. And I'm not even scared. And now I think about it, and I'm like, really? You just willy-nilly just went and like, hey, look under the bed. But I did. So I get on the floor. I look under the bed. And what do you know? The earrings are side by side under the bed. But they're not like at the edge of under the bed. They're all the way in the middle of under the bed. So I quickly retrieve them, and I notice that the backs of the earrings are on both of the earrings also. Okay, you know, nothing weird there, nothing to see. I must have just woken up in the middle of the night, taken both of my earrings out, put the backs back on them, and then crawled under the bed and put them side by side on the floor. Sure, okay. <laughs> so... So I'm creeped out a little bit, right? But I don't really have time to be creeped out, so I just get on with my day. I quickly get ready, and as I'm about to leave for work, I remember that I didn't get the mail the day before. So now, as I've mentioned, the house is a long ranch style, and to get to the front door, you have to walk past um, the second bathroom, my mother's office, and the master bedroom. So as I'm making my way past the master bedroom door, don't you know... The clock radio in the bedroom, as I'm, as I'm literally like just stepping right in front of the door, the clock radio in the bedroom turns on and loud news radio plays. Okay, I stop dead in my tracks and I stare at the radio. It's on the far nightstand in the corner of the bedroom. And I just stand there and I swear to Christ, I feel like the thing is mocking me. So now I'm legit scared. So what do I do? Yeah, well, like any moron, I creep into the room to investigate. And what do I notice when I get there? Huh? The radio is not plugged in. So terrified, I channel my inner Catherine Hicks from Child's Play, Mrs. Barkley, Andy's mom, right? So I lift the clock radio tentatively to check for batteries and, whew, okay. At least there are batteries in the thing, okay? Okay, it's not plugged in, but there's batteries in there. Hey, maybe the alarm was set for 9.05 or whatever time it was. Nope, I checked the alarm. The alarm is set for 5.45 a.m. Okay, now I'm hauling ass and getting out of there, all right? Now it's, it's too creepy with the earrings and the alarm. Screw the mail, I'm getting out of there. So I leave, I go to work, I get back around 7.30 that night. Nothing else happens while I'm home, but now I'm kind of second guessing everything in the house and I'm feeling paranoid. So, you know, did I leave that bag out? Was that rubber band on the counter? Did I turn the ceiling fan on? 
Um, and it's really weird now thinking, I mean, and may God strike my entire family dead if I'm making this crap up. I, but thinking about it now, if this happened today, I probably would have had someone like spend the night with me or I would have stayed at someone's house. But when I was 26, I still thought I was invincible. Ghost be damned. So I'm off for the night, um, off of work for the night. So I head out, I have some drinks with some friends. I come home, pop a movie on, I go to bed, but this time I go to bed with most of the lights on. Though, so yeah, I, I guess I must have been a little scared because I do remember that I, I kept some of the lights on. So, morning comes, I'm alive, it's a beautiful sunny day, my earrings are in my ears, and all is well. Or so I think. Oh, another side note my mom and my stepdad like to have their house super cold, okay? It's a bit like Cameron Fry's house and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's very beautiful and very cold, and you're not allowed to touch anything. So something that I didn't mention previously, I usually wore slippers around the house in the morning, even in the middle of summer. OK, so I swing my legs out of bed and I drop my feet into my warm, fuzzy slippers. And right under my right foot, I immediately feel something in my slipper. I pull my feet out as soon as I can, as fast as I can. And I look down and what do I find but a dead mouse? Yeah, a dead mouse. Hard and cold and flat as a pancake, neatly placed directly in the middle of my damn slipper. Now, full disclosure, did they have a cat? Yeah. Yeah, they had a cat. In 15 years, did I ever see or hear about that cat chasing or catching a mouse? Nope. Did I ever see a mouse in the house? Nope. Did I ever see that cat playing with the dead mouse outside anywhere? No. And I most certainly never saw that cat catch a mouse, shove it between the pages of an encyclopedia to flatten it, and then lovingly transport it and gently place it into someone's shoe. So, go about the rest of my day. Nothing else weird happens. Still creeped out. Whatever. I don't even remember what I did for the rest of the day, but I know that nothing else weird or nefarious happened. Okay, so now we're on the third day. All right, I figure I better start wrapping this up. So now we're on the third day. This took over the course of three days. So first morning was the earrings and the alarm clock. Second morning was the dead mouth. Now we're on the third day. So I get up in the morning again, all is well, or again, so I think. Now it's the early afternoon and I'm sitting at the kitchen table and it's another beautiful sunny day and I'm reading the newspaper as many people did in 2005 and still do today, archaic as it sounds. But so there I am minding my, my mind and my business when all of a sudden I hear a radio. Okay, another radio, come on. I'm pretty sure I dropped an F-bomb then and there because now this is getting ridiculous, okay? Now I'm pissed. So where is the noise coming from? I'm starting to think someone's messing with me. Where's the noise coming from? What is it? And seriously, retelling the story, I can't even believe that all of this happened in the three days. But it's the truth. And maybe it doesn't sound like much, but if it happened to you, you'd be creeped out. So turns out the sound is coming from the attached garage. And the sound coming from the radio, it sounds like some sort of news report again. So I open the door, and sure enough, it's this little marine radio that is specifically used to report the weather conditions on bodies of water for people who are out on lakes and oceans with boats. 
My stepfather had a small sailboat at the time. Well, I know that I sure as shit did not turn this damn thing on. I park outside. I haven't even been in the garage in days. And don't you know this little metal box, it also, it's just given off this vibe that it's legit mocking me and laughing in my face. Also, not plugged in, but yes, running on batteries. So now I'm pissed. I walk over, I hit the thing, and it shuts off. I walk back into the house, I call a friend and tell her to come over, and don't you know, before she does, the thing goes off again. Now, not knowing anything about this radio, it's very possible that I hit the snooze button the first time, if it even had one, when I whacked it and causing it to go on again. But I 110% didn't turn this thing on initially, okay? So, anyway, at this point, I make my friend stay with me for a few hours, and then my mom returns home later that night. I tell her about the incident, and I'm actually pretty sure I even accused, I think I accused her and my stepdad of, like, having a neighbor mess with me. Um, but in retrospect, I just don't even know how that would have been possible. I mean, I, I don't know. So at the end of the day, all I can think is that I was legitimately, legitimately experiencing something paranormal. It was the first time I was really alone. I was kind of setting down roots there. Maybe there was somebody there that didn't want me there, some sort of ghost. And whomever it was, they were a first-class dick because, you know, way to go scaring a woman home alone. So I had, living at that home, I had two or three more, it was three, I had three more unexplained spooky experiences at that house in the years to come. Um, and in the future, I've struggled in my own home. I did struggle for a few years with electronics going off when I was alone. Um, but also shutting off when I loudly threatened, like, hey, don't make me come in there, and then just quiet. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I've got some weird vibe with the electronics, but that for sure was a ghost, and they were being an asshole, and they did not want me in that house. <laughs> so um, I haven't had anything happen in the past few years, and that is a-okay by me. I do not miss it at all, not even a little bit. Um, but, yeah, that was my first little spooky story. Um, I hope you enjoyed my little story, and uh, I've got one more coming your way. Um, I'll be back in just a bit with a tale from the historically haunted Archer Avenue. All right, so much love and keep it creepy. The next story comes to you from JT of the Brew Crime Podcast, and it takes place at a very famous location. And while JT is the narrator of the story, and he tells it in first person, it didn't actually happen to him, but it happened to somebody else that told him while they were both working at this location. Someone that cannot be named. They always told me that my new establishment of work was unique, was special in ways that only I could ever understand after working there. It was built to be a shimmering beacon and when it was burnt to the ground by the British forces during the American Revolution, it was built up again in pieces better than before. And throughout multiple presidencies, it had been renovated. President Harry S. Truman finally gutted the building of everything but its exterior walls and reconstructed the White House as we know it today. There are 132 rooms, 35 bathrooms, and six levels in the residence. There are 412 doors, 147 windows, 28 fireplaces, 8 staircases, 
and three elevators. For as many rooms as are in this place, there are even more stories, historic events, experiences of tragedies, and secrets. As famous as this house is, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue is also one of the most famous haunted houses. Presidents, first ladies, and staff have experienced cold drafts, ghostly entities, and now I can add my name to that list. We had just arrived back from a typical presidential trip. It is always a challenge to forward communications and security, and even more challenging to break down and return, but we pretty much had it down to an art form. Even with our military-like precision, we are always at the mercy of transportation. No matter what we did, we were going to get back late. I was tired. We all were. Having unpacked my go bag, I was ready to relax for whatever time I could before the next task on the timeline. Each day is new, different, and it's a thrilling and exhausting job. 2 a.m. Not quite the bewitching hour, but despite the White House's incessant hustle and bustle, it was quiet tonight. The rooms of the White House reverberate many of the sounds I didn't even know I was making. The light shone in from the windows. I walked down the colonnade towards the East Wing. I made my way past the Vermai Room, the library, then reached the East Garden Room. No sooner had I arrived, I realized that I already didn't know if I wanted to be where I was. I didn't feel alone. I wasn't alone. But I was the only one in the East Wing. It's hard to be alone in the White House, but it seems that even when you are, you aren't. Heavy footsteps and a cool breeze followed me down the colonnade. I stopped. The breeze and steps stopped. I continued on, and it followed. The echoes made it seem like steps were coming from the theater, but there was no one. I looked out into the garden. When the mind is confused, when it can't explain what's happening, it looks in odd places for the answers. There was no one in the garden. Then, just above my left shoulder, there was an orb in the reflection. I had read about these, seen the photos in books, but no matter how long I think about it, no matter how many words enter my head to describe this seemingly simple ball of light hovering above my shoulder, nothing explains the feeling that accompanies it. Chills ran down my body and back up again, freezing bone, muscle, nerve, and mind. It wasn't until later that I realized I was not the only one this had happened to. For decades, centuries, people have felt the presence of this man walking down the halls with them when they felt the most alone. The footsteps of the 16th president walk with them. Most notable sightings of Lincoln's ghost have been reported during the long administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt. 
Eleanor Roosevelt used the Lincoln bedroom as her study and said she felt his presence when she was working there late at night. Winston Churchill, the British Prime Minister, told a story of emerging naked from his evening bath, smoking his cigar, only to find Lincoln sitting by the fireplace in his room. The more I researched, the more I realized I wasn't the only one. I had joined a list of both influential people and White House staffers that had experienced the presidential presence of Lincoln. People who have had far more to lose than I have told stories of what they felt while walking, working, and experiencing the immense presence of the White House. Scary? Not necessarily. Influential and intriguing? Maybe. Profound? Absolutely. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the True Crime Podcast, The Trail Went Cold, and for the special Halloween episode, I'm here to share a spooky story about an incident where the trail could have conceivably gone cold for yours truly. Well, thankfully the situation only lasted for a short period of time and everything turned out fine, but the basic concept is pretty terrifying, and that's getting yourself locked in a deserted subway station overnight. Yes, that actually happened to me, though it was actually about a half hour rather than overnight, but still not a pleasant situation. It occurred during the spring of 2001 while I was finishing up my final year at York University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I went to a party at another student's house and entered the subway station sometime between 1.30 and 2 a.m., and when I arrived at the platform, the train was just leaving, so I had missed it. For some reason, I had been given incorrect information about how late the trains ran, and just, assumed and just assumed that another one would be arriving shortly, but I waited for over 10 to 15 minutes, and no train arrived, and I eventually noticed that there wasn't a single person in sight. I then double-checked the train schedule, which was posted on the wall, and discovered that the train I had just missed was, in fact, the last train of the night, and there were no others coming. Well, I figured that I would leave the station and hail a taxi cab, which was a minor inconvenience, but not the end of the world. But as I walked upstairs and headed for the exit, I noticed that the station was completely deserted and there was no one else around. Sure enough, when I made it to the exit, I discovered that a, do I discovered that a door had been shut and locked tight, and when I went and tried another exit, it had a locked door as well. So it looked like the geniuses at the Toronto Transit Commission had locked up the station for the night, with me inside. It definitely appeared that I was in there completely alone, or at least, I hoped I was alone. The situation was eerily reminiscent of a British horror film titled Creep, where a woman played by Franca Patente is accidentally locked in the London Underground overnight, and finds herself being stopped by some hideously deformed hermit named, nicknamed Creep, who lives in the sewers and keeps his victims submerged in rat-infested cages before he eats them. Thankfully, that movie did not come out until a couple years later, so it wasn't on my mind when I found myself in a similar situation. But still, I wasn't anxious to find out if any deformed psychos or monsters who lived in the subway stations came out to play when the place was locked up for the night. Yes, I was carrying a cell phone at the time, but this was 2001, and my phone was a very large one with an antenna, so I'm not even sure if I would have gotten any reception in the station if I tried to call for help. So my approach was to bang on the window of one of these locked doors 
and thankfully, there was a TTC employee in a nearby booth who heard me and unlocked the door to let me out. But of course, he seemed pretty pissed off and wondered where the hell I had come from, because apparently, the TTC staff do not bother to perform final checks of their station to ensure they're empty before they lock them up for the night. Regardless, disaster was averted, and I did not have, the, and I did not have to spend the entire night inside a deserted subway station, and the trail did not go cold. Anyway, thank you very much to Ari for inviting me to share this story on this episode, and I hope you all have a happy Halloween. Hi, this is Justin Williams, host of Super Tangent Podcast and lead audio editor of Go Team Podcast. Super honored to be here on the Murder Under the Midnight Sun podcast. Freaking dope podcast. So I was invited on to share a kind of a, a crazy story, and I think I have a pretty good one. So it's the birth of my daughter. Um, I'm 32. My daughter is now six. Back in 2015, uh, my then wife at the time and I, well, actually girlfriend, we got married later that year. My girlfriend at the time uh, was pregnant. Uh, We were literally at the hospital after her water had broke, right? And, um, you know, we spent the night at the hospital. The following day, we were just kind of kicking it. My mom had come through. Um, We were just checking on her, seeing if everything is okay and standing by because she was about to pop with a baby any minute now, you know. Now, at the time, I was a direct support professional for a place called the Ark of Anchorage here in Anchorage, Alaska, which basically, um, I'm a glorified caretaker for people with developmental disabilities, right? And that requires a lot of documentation, paperwork, note-taking after the fact so that they can clear it with Medicaid, clear it with, uh, you know, the state, whatever, to say that I actually did my job and that I need to get paid for it. Well, I had notes due, um, and during this time when we were in the hospital, my 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 girl's about to have a baby, our baby, work calls me, the art calls me, it's my manager at the time, she doesn't even work there anymore, calls me, he's like, hey, I need you to come in, I'm like, nah, 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 my, my girl's about to have a baby, and uh, I'm not interested in coming in, so my job basically got threatened, so, you know, come in, or otherwise you might have to find a new job, now, at the time, I had just finished college, and I was slightly strapped for cash, and I needed this job. We're just about to have a baby. I'm like, what in the world, right? So I decided to go in. I decided to go in and do my gosh darn notes. It, it, now, the Ark of Anchorage is in a very tricky spot here in Anchorage, Alaska. You can't see it. Um, and in order to get there, you have to cross two double lanes going opposite directions, both going one way. In opposite directions, right? It's almost like a, a like a like a like a highway. It's very tricky, very easy to get into an accident if you're not paying attention, right? So I get to the arc, do my notes, everything's fine. I leave, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we can't even leave the hospital if I don't go get a uh, <laughs> a baby seat at you know some place, right? So I decide to okay, I'm gonna go to the East Side Target and go get that. So I'm pulling out of the driveway. I look to my left, clear. Look to my right, I'm clear. The next thing I remember, I'm in the ambulance. Apparently, a Dodge Ram or some giant truck, and I was driving a little 2004 Ford Focus at the time, it was a baby, it was Blueberry, right? Had been going way too fast and T-boned me right as I was creeping out. I shattered my tailbone, I broke all my ribs on the left side, and my lungs were completely collapsed on that side as well. 
Now, my right side was completely fine, so I was basically the equivalent of Harvey Two-Face from Batman. <laughs> but I couldn't remember my name. I couldn't remember the date. I didn't know where I was for a long time. It took me a long time for me to come through. When I woke up, there was glass in my face, blood everywhere, tubes everywhere, in my nostrils, blah, 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 blah. It's gross. <laughs> and I was scared for my life, so I kept trying to tell myself jokes in, in my head because I didn't know what in the world was going on. And I didn't know what had happened until they told me. So, of course, my girl was super, super scared. It's been hours at this point. My car was the equivalent of a crushed soda can. The doctors have no idea how I survived. Zero. None. They said I definitely should have been dead. It's like, well, thank you, doc. I appreciate that. You know, but <laughs> the, the, the emphasize on someone's watching out for you. Right. Uh. And I believe in God, so I'm like, okay, God's got me, you know. But I was basically meant to die that day. The very next day, my daughter was born at 4 a.m. the following morning. So my daughter's birth story is basically Grey's Anatomy episode, right? Now, to this day, I have zero recollection of the accident. No sounds, no fears right beforehand, nothing. I don't remember a thing. I remember every second before it and then i remember waking up in an ambulance interesting that i was told that i should have died the day before my daughter was born so i don't know what you believe and i don't know what you and i mean now we're fine right everything's good and me and my daughter diana named after wonder woman laugh at that story uh but sometimes i still get panic attacks driving by that area and it's so strange to have panic attacks about something that you don't remember. How weird is that? So you want to talk about a close call? That was a close call. And I don't know what you believe in, if it's God, if it's something else, if supernatural uh, energies or power. But I believe God was looking out for me. So whatever it is that you believe in, trust me, they were probably looking out for me too. We're healthy. We're happy. I'm still podcasting. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, no more spooky shit. That'd be great. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Hello, everyone. Lisa Cisneros here, back again from Chicago to tell one more spooky tale about an experience that myself and two friends had back in the fall of 1998 on the historically haunted Archer Avenue, which um, I think I mentioned before, some of you may have heard of it because it's famously known for the legend of Resurrection Mary. Uh, for those who don't know, real quick, Resurrection Mary is supposedly the ghost of a young woman who was hit by a car and killed after leaving a dance at the O'Henry Ballroom um, in the late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, and I say that because there are three women buried at Resurrection Cemetery that are commonly thought to be the real Mary. Um, no one's really sure. So but anyhow, dozens of people have reported picking up a hitchhiking woman in a party dress who asked to be dropped off near Resurrection Cemetery, and then she just, like, disappears from the vehicle. Okay, so that's the nuts and bolts of the story. There's more to it. You know, you can look it up if you're interested. But, um, oh, and funny enough, today I actually spoke to one of my friends who was with me uh, the day of the incident or the night of the incident that I'm about to talk about. And um, I'm glad we I'm glad we talked about it. We kind of rehashed everything because I just had to verify that, you know, this did actually happen to us and I wasn't making it up. And we both remember the incident in the same way. So um, 
yeah, back to the story here. Uh, Archer Avenue, um, Archer Avenue itself is actually a lot of it is absolutely beautiful. Uh, it's surrounded by forests, like lush trees, lots of greenery. Um, the drive up and down Archer is beautiful. However, the area that surrounds Archer, eh, not so beautiful. Um, it's super industrial. There's some kind of, eh, you know, shady uh, watering holes, if you know what I mean. And um, there's a there's a it's the site of a quarry. It's home to the Calumet Sag Bridge. It's this huge eyesore of a bridge and just like sticks out like a sore thumb. Um, but also there's really just this air of heaviness around the whole area. And I mean that like even if you're not someone who is into the supernatural or or feels like they, they have any connection with anything supernatural. I think in this case, it's kind of a universal feeling for anyone that there's just this heaviness in your chest um, because the area has seen a lot of death. There there have been many, many fatal car accidents on Archer Avenue, and there are flowers and little memorials and monuments down the entire stretch of road for all of the, the lost um, people who lost their lives on the road. And uh, the most haunted area is generally considered to be between two cemeteries. One is Resurrection, and then the other is St. James Sag Cemetery. Um, there's also a church there. It's actually one of the oldest in Illinois, established in 1856. Um, and it's also the location of our upcoming story. So October 1998, I'm 19 years old, and I'm out with my friends Danny and Kristen. And, you know, we're too young to go out and drink. We're looking for something to do. Um, we're all into spooky stuff at the time, especially Danny and I. So we had driven out to Archer Avenue before and nothing too crazy had ever happened, um, except for this one time when we pulled up in front of the closed gates of St. James Cemetery. We got out, we walked around, we snooped a little. I mean, we couldn't go into the cemetery, but we peered like inside through the gates. Cool, whatever. Got back in the car, drove up the road a little bit. Um, but then we decided to turn around to go back as we drove by the cemetery again, the gates were wide open. Like someone wanted us to come in like, you know, hey, sure, dummies, come on in. So, you know, of course we stopped, but my friends wanted to go in, but I put the kibosh on that. I was like, no, whomever opened those gates wants us to come in either to scare us, hurt us or arrest us. It's not going to be a good thing. So luckily I won that one and we didn't go in. But. The night of this incident, okay, it's probably about 1130 and we drive up to our usual stretch of road searching for some spooky shit and um, we drive right past St. James Sag Cemetery and we continue down the road. Well, instead of just driving up and down the road as we usually did, this time we pulled off into this little section that has like a small parking area and when we pulled in, we saw a little bit of a clearing like in the trees, like almost like a little pathway. And we saw a flash. So we pulled a little closer and upon looking closer, we discovered that that flash was actually from reflectors. Um, I hope I'm using, I hope that's the right word. Uh, yeah, reflectors that um, it used to be, they were on what used to be the gates of an old railroad crossing. Okay, so a little weird, railroad crossing in the middle of an established forest, but whatever, okay. So but we're too scared to drive over it and into the forest because we have no idea what's on the other side. And it's super dark and it's late. So we decide we're just going to turn around and head back home. Well, as we start approaching St. James Sag Cemetery again, we see a maroon four door car with uh, three young men and a girl 
they look to be about our age, maybe actually thinking about it, maybe a little younger. They were more like like teens um, and they're sitting outside the gates in the car, just kind of hanging out. So, you know, we were a friendly bunch and we kind of slowed down and they were a friendly bunch, too. So immediately they were kind of like waving us down like, hey, hey, how are you guys? And so we stopped, we pulled over and we chatted for a minute and we basically just discovered that, you know, we're down. We're both we're all down here doing the same thing, just out hunting for some scares. So we tell them about the old uh, train tracks and the railroad crossing that we found and they were interested. So we offer to um, take them to the tracks and we'll have them follow us. And OK, great. So these kids started following us and we pull into the little parking area. And while we stop, the kids in the car keep going. And we're like, what are they doing? Are they driving into the forest? What? You know, so immediately, Danny and I both get like a really bad feeling. Um, oh, and by the way, Danny was driving. I was in the passenger seat and Kristen, she was in the back. But we both pretty much at the same time said that, you know, we wanted to go right now or, or this was bad. We had a bad feeling like, let's get out of here. So all of a sudden we're like terrified. And I mean, these kids were not threatening at all. They, were, they didn't look threatening. They were kind. I don't know what came over us, but we saw that car driving to the trees and basically like just disappear. And we're like, nope, nope, we're going. So Danny speeds out of the parking area. We're back on the road like in seconds. And we are flying down the road to get out of there. And I remember because it was it was the wind. We had the windows down. I mean, and we were, yeah, he was just hauling ass. So the next thing we know, there's a car out of nowhere right on our asses. I mean, it's so close to us and it just appeared behind us. Okay. Because remember, I said we had the windows open. You can hear what's going outside, what's going on outside. We could see well enough, like there was nothing there. And then all of a sudden there's this car. So um, the lights are on, right? Okay, yes, I had to think for a second. I got sidetracked, wait. So they're, they're behind us. The lights are on this car. Um, we can't see, but we know it's these kids, right? So, and they're just totally messing with us. And the way they're tailing us is legit, like frightening and unnecessary, okay? And then just like that, don't you know, the car disappeared as quickly as it appeared, just disappeared. So one second, out of nowhere, we have this car on our ass, bright lights in our face, and then it's gone. And we're surrounded by forest. There is nowhere to turn off the road. And then before we can even get over the initial shock of that, as we're approaching St. James Cemetery again, the maroon car is parked outside of it. And no bullshit, the four teens are standing at the closed cemetery gates facing the inside of the cemetery with their hands wrapped around the bars of the gate. Now, I know what you're thinking. The four teenagers simply found another way out and circled back around and pulled up to the cemetery gates and stood like that to scare us. Okay, sure. You know what? Bravo to them. They got us. But this all happened in a matter of maybe like a minute. So they had to practically teleport to get there. And even if they did, that doesn't explain the speeding car behind us that appeared and disappeared out of freaking nowhere. Who the hell was that? It couldn't have been the kids. So was it a ghost or an apparition from one of the many accidents that had taken place on the road? I don't know. Guess we'll never know. What I do know is that this incident scared us enough that we didn't go back for years.
all right? Like really for years, like we were full blown adults, like in our thirties before we went back. Um, and then when we did, we went during the day and uh, we did end up driving through that old railroad crossing. We, we manned up, it was Danny and I remember, and we were like, let's just do it and see what's behind there. So behind the trees was like this giant industrial plant, a weird house. And then yes, eventually we did find an exit to Route 83, which is the crossroad to Archer. Um, that we would drive up on, but I still don't know how these kids managed to get back to the cemetery so quickly. Um, could it have been done? Absolutely, but I don't know how they did it. And again, I certainly don't know who was behind us. Um, yeah, but that's really it. That's just my little story. Um, that's the last of my little story. And you know, if you're ever in the area, I suggest that you definitely check out Archer Avenue. Um, look up all of the different haunted sightings. Um, there's, there's cemeteries all over. It's really rich with history. There's, I think there's part of like, part of a bomb from the Manhattan Project buried somewhere over there. It's, it's a really interesting, it's a cool place. Um, and during the day, it's actually a really beautiful drive. So yeah, that was just, uh, that was my last little creepy story about Archer Avenue. And with that, I say happy Halloween and remember to keep it creepy folks. All right. Much love. Bye-bye. Hello, my name is Rachel Lucina from the Yours in Murder and Followers of the Force podcasts. Working in theater, ghost stories are something that comes naturally. A good number of theaters are said to be haunted, and it makes sense. If ghosts and spirits are echoes of emotions that were left behind on Earth, a theater would be a likely place for them to dwell. A place where emotions are heightened for both actor and audience. I can't say that I've ever seen a ghost in a theater, but I know there have been moments and feelings in various theaters that I cannot explain. In a previous Halloween episode, in a previous Halloween episode, I told the story of the Chicago Iroquois Theater fire, which is the deadliest single building fire in U.S. history. In 1903, over 600 people died in a fire during a matinee performance of Mr. Bluebeard due to poor fire safety procedures. Many of the deceased were women and children. Some of the victims ended up perishing in the alley behind the theater as they frantically jumped out from an unfinished fire escape to the icy stone street below. This alley became known as Death Alley. Today, it still runs behind a theater. It was the Oriental Theater, which hosted both live performances and movies. Then it became the Ford Center for the Performing Arts, and now the Nederlander Theater. I've been to shows at this theater and walked the alley to get to the stage door. I never felt the famous cold spots or saw a ghost, but I can tell you the entire alley has a very spooky feel. Once you know the story of what happened in that very spot, it becomes easy to understand why that entire alley just doesn't feel right, even as it's filled with fans asking for autographs. Sometimes theater hauntings have nothing to do with disasters. The Rialto Theater in Joliet, Illinois was built in the 1920s and is still open today. I worked there for several years as an intern, a bartender, and a stagehand. 
I had heard stories of the ghost which haunted the theater. An episode of a ghost show was even filmed there. A young boy was sometimes seen in the balcony when the theater should have been empty. Strange sounds are often heard. And, perhaps most troubling, staff members have felt unseen hands pull at their skirts as they walked through the theater. I never felt anyone pull at my skirt, or quite frankly ever wore a skirt while I worked there, and I never saw any figures, but there were always plenty of strange noises and unseen footsteps when I would be at work. The perfectly logical explanation was that it was an old theater and shadows played tricks on your eyes. That explained the noises, it explained some of the sudden changes in the theater, and it's easy enough to tell myself this when the lights were lit and there are people around. But late at night, in the dark, it became much easier to believe in ghosts when you were cleaning dressing rooms that had been used since the days of vaudeville. Maybe ghosts aren't real, but I most certainly avoided being alone in the theater in the dark. The theater at my high school was similarly haunted. Props were... would. Props would go missing or be moved, even when no one was around. Footsteps were heard. One story says that the actors kept seeing a small boy in the back of the auditorium during a stage combat practice that was supposed to be close to any spectators for safety. The stage manager went to ask the child to leave, assuming it was the son of a teacher who was roaming while his parents finished up work. When they reached the back of the auditorium, the child was nowhere to be found. None of the doors had opened. The actors insisted that the kid had just ducked down. They could see them again. But a full search turned up no one. Later, when it was discussed what they should call this ghost in the theater, two cast members suggested Timmy at the same time. A second later, a crew member's face goes white. He was sorting through plywood scraps for the set and found a piece with writing on it. It was written in Sharpie, and it just said, Timmy says hi. I can tell you that believing in the ghost of the high school theater is a grand tradition there, and while all of us assume it is in good fun, definitely props moved around that I didn't move. I stage managed there after I graduated, and while you could probably explain most of the occurrences, there's always the one that's just a little unsettling. Whether you believe in theater ghosts or not is up to you. Many people claim theaters are often haunted. Others claim these stories are the product of the over-imaginative and over-dramatic actors instead. While I've never seen a ghost, I've had feelings and experiences I couldn't explain. And to this day, I avoid being alone in theaters in the dark. And I'm now going to double down by giving you another spooky theater ghost story written by my friend Lori, who has a lot of experience working in theaters and has seen some weird shit and narrated by myself. I went to college for theater. Every theater school has a story about one of the theaters being haunted or, you know, just weird stuff happening while they're doing a certain show often that had spooky themes in it. But our largest theater actually was haunted. My first year there, we were doing a production 
that required a large revolving pyramid set piece that took up most of the stage. One day, during our daily build time, I was working on the underside of the frame of the pyramid, and I was the only one on the stage at the time. Because of where I was working, I couldn't see anyone coming near me, but I could hear them walking on the stage floor if anyone approached the set. At one point during the day while working, I reached out from under the set to grab my power drill, but it wasn't where I had left it. I thought I may have actually set it further away than I remembered, so I crawled out from under the set to look for it, but it was completely gone. I went down to the shop to see if someone had come up and borrowed it, but the other students said no one had come upstairs recently. Now, one of our professors had previously told us a story about a kid named Tommy and how he was our resident ghost and that he liked to play tricks on people in the theater. Back in the 70s, the school didn't lock the doors to all the buildings and kids would often sneak inside at night to, you know, run around and cause trouble and do the stupid things that 18-year-olds do. One night, a group of kids went into the theater and they found their way up to the catwalk above the audience. While they were up there fooling around, Tommy ended up falling and landed in the chairs over 50 feet below. The professor told us that Tommy's playful and he doesn't mean any harm, and if he's really bothering you, just ask him to stop. I went back to the stage and took another look around for my drill, thinking I may have just absentmindedly set it somewhere else but it was nowhere to be found. I decided to go back to what I was doing and just skip what I needed the drill for and do it later. Feeling a bit silly at the time, I also asked Tommy out loud if he had it and if so, could he return it so I could finish my work. About 10 minutes later, I reached out from my spot to grab another tool and smashed my hand directly onto my drill, knocking it over. After swearing profusely, I politely thanked Tommy for returning my drill and finished up for the day. The next year, I was taking digital pictures of a bunch of props for a prop Bible I was making for a show that we did every year. And halfway through the set of photos, there's one that has a huge light flare streaking across the frame. Since it was a digital camera, it wasn't a light leak and the pictures before and after it were fine. I think Tommy just wanted to say hi and get his picture taken. There was also the time that two spotlight operators were up in the catwalks running the spotlights for a show, and one of them kept having things thrown at her head, little things like paper scraps and a pencil. And at first she thought it was the other spotlight operator just messing with her, but she looked over to see that they were over 20 feet away from her on the opposite side of the catwalk. And they had their hands completely full of lights and obviously could not have been throwing things at her. Tommy never really scared me during the time I was at that school. If anything, he was more of a prank-playing nuisance, much like many other 18-year-old boys. Hello, hello. I am Ood Gallifrey from the Occulte Veritatis Podcast, and I was asked to come on here to tell a little story for Halloween. 
Now I could talk about the never-ending encroaching climate change that threatens our lives. You know, all of human civilization tied to the tracks of a trolley problem that nobody wants to pull the lever of. That'll be fun. But today I'm going to tell you a story about my mom's early nursing days. Because they had some supernatural elements that she has not been able to explain. And since I was there, I cannot really offer explanations. But this is what she swears she saw. Back in the early days of her nursing career, she was required to go and do house calls. I guess uh, full-time nurses, they don't really like doing house calls, at least not in the area that my mom worked in. So they got the new nurses to run from house to house to check on people, to check vitals, put people to bed, all those nursing duties. It was uh, two people, uh, my mom and another junior nurse, and a third person, a senior nurse, who was leading the team and making sure that these new nurses weren't up to anything. Um, it was an older woman they'd been looking after for a few months. Uh, her health had been declining, but she didn't think that the old lady would pass just that night that she went to visit. But that's exactly what happened. Um, my mum and the other junior nurse were sitting in the basement, uh, near an open window smoking. Now, this window was just cracked open, just enough so that they could crane their head over and fit their lips in between the window frame and the interior window and blow the smoke out. Um, maybe enough to get a fist into it, but not much more. Uh, and they were just sitting by the window, uh, gossiping, I'm not sure about what. Uh, from photos of the time, uh, you can picture my mom and the other junior nurse in giant Coke bottle glasses, as was the style of the time, uh, smoking on some big cigarettes. And suddenly, they both saw this light behind them. Now... There's just one single little old light bulb in this basement that they've been standing under and smoking, and its decaying yellow glow against the concrete of the basement was familiar to them at this time. So this new bright white light behind them was intrusive. It overpowered the incandescent light that was hanging in the room. Uh, they both turned around. They said they saw this... When my mom talks about it, she doesn't even describe it as a ball. She describes it as a point of light, like a grain of sand that's glowing bright, bright enough to light up the room, to make deep, dark shadows appear behind anything that is obscured. Um, the pillars that were in the basement had deep, dark shadows just because of the brightness of this thing, and suddenly that old basement uh, was lit up. Um... And my mom and the other nurse, uh, they both say that as soon as they had time to kind of like, as soon as their brains had enough time to go, yep, that's a floating point of light, fucking weird, it flew between them. They were standing on either side of this window, and they both say that this little point of light went through the window. I don't mean the open part. They say that it flew right towards the glass part that was covering most of the open window. It was open just a crack. And it went right through the glass. And then as soon as it got out through the glass, it went straight up into the night. And they could see the light illuminating the house as it quickly ascended. But soon it was in the clouds. And uh, 
The angle of the window didn't allow them to see just where it had ended up, but they think it went straight up as soon as it left the window. A little while after, uh, after a few more cigarettes, I'm sure, to calm some nerves, uh, the senior nurse came downstairs and had told my mum and the other junior nurse that the old lady had passed away just moments ago, about the same time that that little light showed up in the basement. So, that's my story. Once again, I'm Oud Gallifrey from the Occulte Veritatis Podcast. You can find us at ovpod.ca. We just put out an episode about the pyramids, and we're having a Halloween special about how to kill slash fuck uh, classic monsters. Uh, O-V-P-O-D dot C-A. Back to the regular show. Thank you for having me on. everyone. My name is Jim. Hi, my name is Kate Karen. And my name is Jessica. And we host the Forgotten News Podcast. Ta-da! Thank you, Ariel, for inviting us to join you on your podcast, Murder Under the Midnight Sun. (laughs) I feel like I'm on stage. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Okay. So... Ariel asked for us to tell a true story involving personal danger. Well, we are going to share a story from a listener to our show that we presented on our Halloween episode. Y'all ready? This is really creepy. We know that there are many of you who occasionally need a calm and centered moment in your life because, well, it sure is a scary world out there. But this story is exactly the opposite of calm and centered. I was 15 years old when my parents thought I was mature enough to babysit. So one evening, a man had called me and asked me for just that. Could I babysit for him and his wife? He said he had gotten my phone number from one of my friends that referred me. He told me she usually watches her kids, but she is currently unavailable for the next weekend that they desperately needed a sitter. I asked my parents if this was okay for me to go babysit for this couple. Yes, of course, they said. The man had called back on that Thursday night and told me there was an emergency with his wife's family, and they had to cancel for me to babysit. I felt a little relieved for some reason. Besides, I never got too much detail on who the couple is or even where they got my information. Like what friend gave them my number? Anyway, a few weeks had passed, and late one evening, my mother handed me the phone. It was that guy again. He said him and his wife needed a sitter for Sunday because they had a work dinner meeting. I asked them what time they needed me. He said around 5 p.m. that Sunday. 
My parents didn't have a problem with it. So I said, yes, I can babysit. That Sunday came and I got a little bit of anxiety and my dad yelled at me, told me to get in the car. He was driving me to my first official babysitting job. I hopped in the car to have my dad drive me 20 miles south of our town to a newer, richer neighborhood. As soon as we pulled up, I immediately got anxious. My dad told me to call him if I needed him, and he drove off. I walked up to the door, knocked a couple soft knocks, and I waited. Oddly, an older lady answered the door. I was confused, and so was she. What, dear? I'm here to babysit. No, dear, you must be at the wrong house. I have no kids. I heard a loud honk from a car behind me. A man yelled, over here. I turned to see a dark-haired young man driving a silver SUV. I turned and walked towards him. He said, you're Lindsay, right? Yeah. Hey, I'm really sorry about that mix-up but I accidentally gave you our old address. We used to live here, and we gave this house to my wife's mom. Get in the car. My wife is waiting for us. Okay, I said. And before I said anything more, I got into the car as he drove another eight miles or so. He pulled up into a gated community. This was far from the area of the home we came from. He drove up a long, tarred driveway. I noticed an outdoor pool and the landscape was immaculate. I was nervous but excited at the same time. He told me to get out of the car as he dropped me off and wanted to park his car in front of the house. At that moment, everything seemed to be strange. Like, who gets their address wrong? Before I could process anything more, a short blonde woman greets me at the door. I walked in with her as I glanced around the house. The baby is asleep upstairs, she said, and please don't go up there. I didn't think I could say anything because as soon as I tried, the man came up behind me to tell me they had to go. They waved and said goodbye and they were gone through the front door. I gazed around the room trying to figure out what I was even doing there. Everything happened so fast. I don't even know these people very well. And what type of people leave me alone in a house without showing me around? Or even introducing me to their kid? I sat in the living room to text my dad and let him know what happened and where I was. I thought again about how weird it is if I'm babysitting. Where was the baby? I decided I was going to go upstairs to check on him. Wait, they never even told me the gender of the baby. I think a boy? More strange, the age? I kind of panicked. What if the baby wakes up and I can't hear him? I slowly creeped up to the top of the stairs. There were no baby gates. Nothing. I went to the only door upstairs that is shut. I went to open the door. The door's locked? What? I tried it again. 
I couldn't turn it. I tried as hard as I could, and I, I couldn't open it. No way. Why would they lock a baby in their room? Okay, this is getting creepy. So I decided to go back downstairs. I sat back down on the couch, and I heard my phone ting. It was a text message from my dad. He asked me how things were going. I didn't want to let on to my dad that I was feeling anxious and uncomfortable in the home. So I told him, I'm okay, Dad. I decided it was time to look around in the kitchen for something to eat. I noticed a pantry. So I went in the pantry and scanned it for food. Nothing. Nothing in the pantry. Wait a minute. Not a lot of food or anything? And come to think of it, not a lot of furniture either? I sat back on the only couch in the whole house. I turned on this small TV. And I was trying to impress myself without having to freak out with the emotions that were running through me. It was about 45 minutes later had passed. And I heard a sound coming from the kitchen. I froze. My heart sank. I got up slowly, sliding off the couch. I walked toward the kitchen to notice the back door was open. I struggled not to freak out. I ran to the pantry and I heard some footsteps around the kitchen. I texted my dad to help me. He immediately called me back. Dad, somebody is in the house. Call 911. Hang up and call 911. I'm on my way. I dialed the police as fast as I could to have them tell me to stay on the phone. I heard some more footsteps by the pantry door. I held the door handles shut, sobbing. Then I heard a woman's voice. It was very faint, but I heard it. Then I heard a man say, check over there. Then I heard more footsteps. I was freaking out. What felt like hours, but only a couple minutes. Pound, pound, pound on the door. I backed up and held my breath. Nothing. Soon after, I heard a man yell loudly, Police! I opened the pantry door to peek through the crack of the door to see a police officer in uniform. I opened the door crying as he pointed his gun, ordering me to the floor. I've never been so scared in my life. Six or more other officers were swarming the house. I didn't say anything. The officers cleared me to talk, and I told them I was a babysitter, me the sit sitter, stuttering my words, crying. They seemed to ease up on me and all the other police officers cleared the home and sat me down until my dad showed up. They told me that the house I was in was a real estate home that was being sold. It was being staged with belongings for showings. No one lives here. No baby. No one. Your daughter is lucky to be alive because when they pulled up into the home, Some of the officers chased a man with dark hair through the gated community. 
yet they were unsuccessful on catching him. They believed that they were using the home for kidnapping and worse. A girl around my age had gone missing seven months prior to this incident. Kids are getting sex trafficked all the time, and I'm sitting in an empty house just waiting to be kidnapped. All along, I felt my gut saying I shouldn't have gone. How dumb I felt that I got into the car with a stranger to a completely different address to where I was. I counted my blessings. I was alive and safe. But no, the answer is no. I will never babysit again. Well, that is the end of the story. And Ariel, I'm sure you will agree that was definitely a story of personal danger. And listeners, if you would like to hear some other scary stories, we encourage you to listen to the Halloween episode of our show, The Forgotten News Podcast. Now, everyone... Thank you so much for listening. We hope that we thrilled you a little and chilled you a little. (laughs) And with that being said, we will now turn the episode back to Ariel. Bye, listeners. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween, Ariel. about you listeners, but that story really gave me chills, especially as someone that used to babysit in creepy old houses. That'll do it for this year's collaborative Halloween special. Thank you so, so much to everyone that submitted. You're the best. I just loved listening to your stories. Until next time, good night and happy Halloween.